Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. goes a history on fire. Okay, before we get started about Caravaggio, my daughter wants to say hi. Hi, my name is Isabella and my daddy Daniele Bolelli is going to be podcasting about Caravaggio. I really hope you enjoy it and please listen. We left off last time with Caravaggio becoming an artistic superstar thanks to his work for the church at San Luigi dei Francesi. But despite popular acclaim, or maybe because of it, the artistic establishment was extremely bugged with him. In some way, this is nothing new. This is a fairly common thing throughout all ages and places, that when some artist emerges that would revolutionize uh, the convention, the artistic conventions of his times, the artistic establishment rarely respond well to this. Caravaggio was quickly becoming a pop culture hero, but the Academy considered his work lowbrow. Uh, it didn't help the fact that Caravaggio was unorthodox in just about every possible way. He didn't do all the things that normal painters did. He didn't establish a studio with assistants. He, he did actually everything by himself. He took no formal students. His choice of subject, the fact that he regularly mixed what was considered sacred and profane, was considered scandalous. He refused to use classical statues as models and instead used people on the street. His painting said a visceral, just emotionally charged quality that went straight for the viewer's guts. And again, this is something that most people loved about him, but the artistic establishment did not. In the words of one of his early biographers, Giovanni Pietro Bellori, I quote, Caravaggio has been most harmful and wrote havoc with every ornament and good tradition of painting. That's sort of the way the establishment responded. But the more the elite hated him, the more the common people adored him. No painter of his day, and possibly ever, was able to have such a magnetic effect on masses of people. Now, immediately after his work for San Luigi dei Francesi, he received another commission by a serpent Tiberio Cerasi, who was one of the wealthiest men in Rome. He was a new treasurer for the Pope, and he had wanted Caravaggio to paint for the side walls of his chapel in Santa Maria del Popolo. 
while one of the other star painters of the day, Annibale Carracci, would paint the altarpiece. In some way, Cerasi is setting this up as a competition between Caravaggio and Carracci. The two have very different style. Carracci tend to go for a more idealized, pretty type of painting, whereas Caravaggio tends to, his style is brutally realistic. The subjects that Caravaggio was to paint were respectively the conversion of St. Paul and the martyrdom of St. Peter. As usual, Caravaggio would tackle it with his uh, gutsy style. Uh, Graham Dixon talks about his approach in the following way, I quote, The lives of Christ and his followers were neither rich nor splendid. Their deaths were brutal. And this is exactly what Caravaggio is trying to go for. He doesn't want to Disneyfy the story. He doesn't want to make it all, you know, angels coming down from heaven to pick up the saints and lead them. He wants to show martyrdom in its goriest details. Now, his first version of the conversion, which technically should be the least controversial of the paintings, since there's no violence involved, the conversion of St. Paul, the very first version, was rejected. And nobody knows why for sure, there are theories about it, but they ask him to do a second version, which was still controversial because you could see these kind of poor figures in the painting. St. Peter's executioners have dirty feet. On top of it, he managed to dedicate much more space to the horse than he did to St. Paul. And he even... Probably in Aslan to Arcaracci, in a little inside joke, he painted the ass of the horse pointing towards Carracci's painting. In any case, the job was finished by late 1601 and was accepted. By now, Caravaggio was one of the top three painters in Rome, which really meant probably in all of Italy. There was him, there was Carracci, whose um, work he was just in competition with, and there was Giuseppe Cesare, who, if you recall from part one, is the guy who would... Um, Caravaggio had been an apprentice at his studio for a while until they had, uh, he had left in fairly bad terms with Cesare. Now, Caracci and Cesare also didn't like each other very much, and in one occasion he... You know, many of these painters would regularly taunt each other and you know play on this rivalry with words, and in one occasion... Um, Cesare had challenged Carracci to a duel, and Carracci grabbed a brush and said, okay, I challenge you, you know, I accept your challenge. And, you know, he made sort of a joke of it. Now, that would have gone probably very differently had Cesare challenged Caravaggio to a duel instead, since Caravaggio was not quite as fond of light-hearted humor, but instead was more fond of swords and bloodshed. But Cesare was wise enough to avoid dueling with Caravaggio, so nothing of the rivalry remained purely artistic. And speaking of Caravaggio's passion for fighting, around this time he got into a fight with an unemployed mercenary named Flavio Canonico, who was a former sergeant of the guards at Castel Sant'Angelo. Nobody knows really why they fought, but their arguments quickly led from Ward to both of them drawing their swords, and Caravaggio wounded his opponents. They eventually settled out of court. 
Soon after this, Caravaggio got into another fight when he assaulted an art student named Girolamo Spampa. Caravaggio did not take it well when he heard Spampa talking badly about his work, so in Caravaggio style he grabbed a stick and proceeded to beat the hell out of him. And in yet another occasion, Caravaggio with his friend Onorio Longhi got into a fight with some of the friends of the pimp, Ranuccio Tommasoni. So, whenever he wasn't with brush stick stuck to the canvas, Caravaggio seemed very busy getting into fights. During this time, Caravaggio seemed to be switching from living at Palazzo Madamas at Cardinal del Monte's residence, he would live there part of the time, and then he would live at uh, Palazzo Mattei. The Mattei were a very wealthy family, you know, other patrons of the arts, much like Cardinal del Monte, and Caravaggio seemed to be spending time back and forth between these two households. This was a fairly productive period in, uh, in Caravaggio's life, among his paintings dating from 1601-1602, we have uh, Sapper at the Mouse, Dubbed in Thomas, The Taking of the Christ. In this latter one, he included himself as a witness holding a lantern. He often painted himself as a side character in some of his paintings. If, you, if you're familiar with Alfred Hitchcock movies, Alfred Hitchcock regularly put a, a little cameo of himself in just about every one of his movies. He would be uh, this one guy who just shows up in the background every now and then. Caravaggio does the same thing in his paintings. He not always, but often shows up in his paintings as a secondary figure. And in The Taking of the Christ was no exception. Around this time, Caravaggio became acquainted with Francesco Boneri, also known as Cecco, who became his model for a lot of the works during this time. Um, Cecco became the closest thing that Caravaggio had to an apprentice. He often lived with him, learned from him about both painting and sword fighting, and Cecco was one of the best painters among those who copied Caravaggio's style in the years to come. There are some people have suggested that he was uh, Caravaggio's lover, but there really is no evidence for it, so it's more speculation on people who have been pushing this narrative regarding Caravaggio homosexuality, which I'll address in a few minutes when it's going to be relevant to our story. Never to miss an occasion for controversy. Caravaggio used Cecco as a model in... Uh, Victorious Cupid. This painting was uh, a bit provocative because what it represented was Cecco in the part of Cupid with his uh, angel wings and everything, trampling under his feet the symbols of knowledge and power, indicating basically that passion is stronger than wisdom, is stronger than knowledge, is stronger than power, that passion rules over everything. As we'll keep this particular story in mind, because this will be at the center of a big fight with another painter that's coming up. Uh, so keep in mind uh, the theme of this victorious Cupid, because it's going to show up very soon again. Around the same time, Caravaggio also used Czech as a model for several paintings of St. John the Baptist, 
and one in particular called Sacrifice of Isaac, which was a rather tricky painting, because the Sacrifice of Isaac is a classic biblical story. It goes back to that anecdote about Abram's life, when Abram had wanted a son for a really long time, but he and his wife had been unable to conceive, until finally this child, Isaac, was born to them after many, many years of trying. So Abram was crazy about his son, he loved him dearly. The biblical tale tells us that as everything was going just fine, God commanded Abram to sacrifice his son as a show of faith. And Abram obviously this is the last thing he wants to do, but hey, this is God's telling you, so Abram decides to obey, drag his son up, ties him up, he's about to sacrifice him, and the very last moment this angel arrives, stopping Abram's hand and saying, okay, we'll do just a test, you passed it with flying colors, good job, now you don't need to kill your son, we know that you, are, you have faith, so that's all we need. In much of the history of Christianity, this tale is uh, pushed forward as a symbol of extreme faith. Obviously, it's a bit of a problematic story, because while the idea of faith can sound good and is usually used as a positive example, the notion of a parent deciding to listen when hearing disembodied voices telling him to murder his son, it's a bit of a tricky tale. So it's some people consider it emphasize the disturbing aspect of this tale more than the, uh, how amazing Abraham's faith was. And this is where Caravaggio seems to be going in his interpretation of this painting. Because what we see is not a pleasant moment of uh, you know Abraham about to sacrifice him and the angel stopping him, but in what Caravaggio shows here is the boy is screaming, being forced onto the sacrificial altar while freaking out while he realizes that his father is about to cut his throat with a knife. There's nothing sanitized about it, nothing pretty. This painting does not scream, uh, oh, have faith in God. This painting is, you know, the most brutal possible interpretation of this event is what Caravaggio pushes forward. In some way, the monstrous violence represented here by Caravaggio makes it fairly difficult to focus on the idea of faith. Another commission came in at this time, again from the church at San Luigi dei Francesi. They had been waiting for quite a while for a sculpture of San Matthew, but the sculpture that they had commissioned was taking forever, and when it was finally done, it was pretty bad work. So... The, um, at the church, they ask Caravaggio to paint uh, San Matthew writing the gospel. The first version of this painting was quickly rejected. This version showed an old man with naked feet looking extremely poor, and that's not what the priests wanted to see. In the words of Caravaggio's biographer Bellori, after he had finished the central picture of St. Matthew and installed it on the altar, the priests took it down, saying that the figure, with its legs crossed and its feet rudely exposed to the public, had neither the decorum nor the appearance of a saint. 
And that's just what Caravaggio did, you know, most of his saints are usually poor-looking and have dirty feet. In some way, this is tying Caravaggio to the more pro-poor interpretation of Christianity, the interpretation of Christianity that very much emphasized the notion of siding with the poorest members of society. Uh, Graham Dixon emphasizes this point by saying, that was, of course, precisely Caravaggio's point. Christ and his followers look a lot more like beggars than cardinals. And in another sentence by Graham Dixon, he says, his sin had been to make holy poverty and humility unpalatably real. The implication was that there was something dangerous, even seditious, about Caravaggio's emphatically humble vision about the origins of Christianity. And despite the fact that church authorities keep responding negatively to this, Caravaggio doesn't seem to be able to help himself. He keeps emphasizing this point over and over, even in the face of a rejection. The priests in this case decided to give him a second chance and accepted the new version, even though the second version is really just making minor attempts at making the saint look more dignified. The Roman artistic community was basically talking about nothing else other than Caravaggio's style. His popularity was just, you know, he had people who loved him, people who hated him, but he just simply could not be ignored. Uh, lots of foreigners came to Rome and they were very intrigued with his work. And yet Caravaggio didn't see, you know, sometimes people say that Imitation is a form of flattery. Well, Caravaggio didn't really see it that way. He didn't like when people were trying to copy his style. He felt like, hey, it's my style, back off. You figure out your own style. He he clearly didn't like criticism, but he didn't really like those who just um, essentially plagiarized his approach to painting. One of Caravaggio's main rivals, a man by the name of Giovanni Baglione, was actually guilty of both, because on one end he copied Caravaggio's style, and on the other he heavily criticized him. Baglione was quite jealous. He has been he had been fuming over the fact that common people loved Caravaggio's work, and Caravaggio was similarly disgusted with the art establishment honoring Baglione and passing him plenty of commissions, despite the fact that he was clearly inferior in talent. So this sets up a bad combination where Baglione and Caravaggio really don't see eye to eye, and things get even worse when Baglione decides to openly challenge Caravaggio. How does he do that? He did it by he did it by creating a painting that was a direct answer to uh, Caravaggio's Victorious Cupid, the one that we discussed a little bit ago. Remember when not so long ago I mentioned remember this painting because it's gonna come back as an important piece in a story. Well, it's coming back now. What happened was Baglione created this painting called Divine Love Overcoming the World, the Flesh and the Devil. In his version, Baglione showed the symbols of virtue overcoming sensual love and, subdu- and showing a saint subduing Cupid basically suggesting that only a sex-obsessed freak like Caravaggio could conceive of earthly love conquering divine love. 
If this wasn't bad enough, he also, uh, Baglione also included in the painting a devil that very much look like Caravaggio. Now, if you combine the painting itself with some of the gossip the Baglione was spreading, which basically he kept implying that Caravaggio was having uh, homosexual relationships with uh, Cecco Boneri, the model that he had been using for the Cupid painting as well as several others, you may guess that Caravaggio was less than pleased with this. Now, the accusation of homosexuality was a dangerous one, considering that sodomy was a capital crime at this time. There was proving that the whole issue of gay marriage is nothing new. At this time, in the Church of St. John at Porta Latina, there was a confraternity of Catholic men had been celebrating homosexual marriages along with mass and the whole uh, Catholic rituals for, uh, for a wedding. But they were doing it among each other. When they were discovered, quite a few of them were just burned at the stake. So homosexuality was not exactly the kind of thing you would kid around about because you wouldn't, you wouldn't take much to go from wards to getting a visit by the police and possibly getting end up burned at the stake. But let's look at this business of homosexuality and Caravaggio because there have been, there have been movies made about him um, implying that he was homosexual. Some of the early scholarship about him suggested that he was homosexual. And yet a lot of the newer scholarship argues the opposite. Uh, most of the newer books suggest that the evidence for Caravaggio's homosexuality is pretty much none. The only thing we have are the accusations by people like Baglione, which, when you think about it, these are his enemies who are throwing accusations because that was just one of the most typical slander for anyone. On the other hand, you know, if we don't have evidence of Caravaggio's homosexuality, we do have quite a lot of evidence that he had female lovers and he was very intrigued with prostitutes. So we cannot prove that he wasn't bisexual. I mean, he certainly liked women. Could he have been bisexual? Maybe. There's absolutely no evidence for it. Could be, but... Needless to say, this whole debate is... Uh, complicated by the fact that people usually want to see what they want to see. So people who want to cast Caravaggio as a gay hero will try to give more credence to some of these rumors than others. Uh, people want to cast Caravaggio as a sexual pervert and view homosexuality in a negative way will also try to cast him as an homosexual. But to be perfectly honest, the evidence doesn't seem to be there. The way I see it, at the uh, Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls being Italian painters in the 1600s rather than African-American rappers in the 1900s, their rivalry would have looked very much like this. Much like Baglione and Caravaggio, you know, they both have their respective crews with them at all times and are not opposed to turning their artistic rivalry into a violent one in the streets. And when you think about it, even this business of accusing a rival of homosexuality within the context of one artistic work, that's pretty much a staple of rap battles in the 20th and 21st century. That's just what you do. That's sort of typical. So here we got Baglione and Caravaggio despising each other with a passion. 
and Caravaggio's success been smoking Baglione's eyes, considering that he saw him as immoral, vulgar, and hostile to all the good traditions of painting. And Caravaggio viewed Baglione as a talentless rule follower, and just he was disgusted with the fact that the art world was in the hands of people like him. Now, one of the differences in my Caravaggio, Tupac, Baglione, Biggie Small comparison is that Baglione clearly did not possess skills on the level of a Biggie Small. You know, whereas both Tupac and Biggie, in their own fields, were very talented, Baglione is so much behind Caravaggio in skill level that it's not even a fair comparison to some degree. On the other hand, Baglione was more popular with the artistic establishment which again is something for which there is no precise equivalent in the rap world. Baglione was the pet of the establishment, Caravaggio was the people's champ. During Easter of 1603, Baglione unveiled this painting that I just mentioned, and he did not get the reception he wanted. It was clear that most people thought this was a bad painting and that they believed Caravaggio's version was much better. And this clearly upset Baglione. Caravaggio and his crew were similarly not pleased with Baglione's gossiping and this challenge through this painting. So they responded to this by pending two ultra-vulgar satirical poems and posting them in the streets. In these verses, Caravaggio and his friends just tore Baglione apart. Keeping up with the Tupac reference, this is Caravaggio's version of Hit Them Up. It's pretty much impossible to translate, since it's all word plays in an ancient version of Italian. But take my word for it, they really rip him apart, very much in modern rap style in a way. Now, in Rome, there was a long-standing tradition of uh, attaching this kind of satirical poems to the wall next to the statue of Pasquino, uh, which was close to Palazzo Braschi. Now, these kind of satirical poems were the equivalent, they were the Renaissance equivalent of these tracks, which sounds harmless enough, except that these things were considered libels, and libels were, had recently become illegal, ever since the change execution that I referred to in the first part of uh, this Caravaggio series. After the change execution, lots of people had been using these libels to accuse the Pope of uh, allowing this execution only to steal the family's estate. And as a result, the Pope did not take this so well, so he made the libel a criminal offense that could result in seven years of rowing in the papal galleys, in other words, becoming a slave, having to be a rower in the papal, uh, in the papal navy. Now, the work in the galleys was so brutal that most of those convicted requested to be beheaded instead, because it was considered preferable to being a slave for seven years in the papal navy. Baglione responded by accusing Caravaggio and his friends to be the authors of these poems. These poems were anonymous, of course, but Baglione you know, didn't take a genius to figure out who was behind it, so Baglione decided to bring the law into this and accuse Caravaggio and friends to be the authors. Again, this was a dangerous accusation, because if he could prove it, Caravaggio and friends could end up as slaves 
in the Papal Navy, which would not be fun. At the resulting trial, Caravaggio had to take the stand and he gave a monstrously contradictory testimony, which was probably the whole point of his testimony was to just confuse the waters. And, you know, he he mentioned how some of his friends, instead they were not his friends, and he argued it. He started talking very well of some of the painters he hated. You know, he was like kind of messing with the expectations of the prosecutor just to confuse things a bit. This bought him enough time so that in the meantime, one of his main protectors, Cardinal Del Monte, could uh, pull the right cards and use this influence to get them acquitted. They were... This was big news, of course, because now they they were free. They were not under this possible sentence. And... uh, However, this did not mean that this was the end of the rivalry. Uh, Honorio Longhi, Caravaggio's friend that we have mentioned previously, as soon as he was out, he promptly went after Baglione and just threw a brick at him as Baglione was leaving church. But, you know, all charges were dropped, and at least for the time being, the rivalry was put to rest. Caravaggio's mood, however, was not put to rest. He kept being his usual troublemaking self. In uh, one anecdote shortly after this period, just a few months later, he was out drinking at the Osteria del Moro, a tavern that also served some food, and um, a waiter named Pietro della Carnaccia brought Caravaggio some artichokes that Caravaggio had ordered. Caravaggio asked which ones of these artichokes are cooked in butter and which ones in oil. And Pietro was probably a cranky waiter and he was not in a good mood. He replied, just smell them and you will know it easily. That was not the kind of answer that Caravaggio was looking for. So in rage, he just threw the plate in the face of Pietro and started a brawl that quickly spread to the whole tavern. He tried to go after Pietro with his sword, but the waiter wisely decided to run away. Uh, Pietro sued Caravaggio, but again Del Monte stepped in and made sure that he would get away with it. I think for a moment of this guy, Pietro della Caronaccia, this waiter that gets into this uh, fight with Caravaggio, and I think how unfair history can be. I mean, think about this guy. Probably lots of things happened in his life. And I'm sure he believed there were quite a few meaningful moments in his life that were considerably more important than this particular uh, brawl with Caravaggio. And yet the only reason why history remembers him at all is because of Caravaggio throwing a plate at him and chasing him over artichokes. History is definitely unfair sometimes. Or maybe it is fair. Maybe the guy had a really boring life and this was really the highlight of it all. Who knows? But let's take a break from the violence for a second. Let's go back to the art. Not that the two are so easily separated, but still. Caravaggio around this time had been asked to paint... um, The subject was the death of the Virgin for the church of Santa Maria della Scala in Trastevere. Again, this did not seem like Caravaggio type of work. You know, the... Why would he try to paint this... uh, virgin ascending to heaven, which was clearly not his style. Well, because he didn't. 
because it took a completely other, different approach to this traditional motif. He, he tackled it in his own way. He painted there unambiguously dead. You know, you could paint Christ dead because everybody knew that he was resurrected, but you couldn't really paint the Virgin dead because that was the end of it and, and nobody did it. You know, the, the typical way of painting Mary was to, if you're going to show her death, was not to really even consider it a death, but they would show Mary kind of leaving her body and her spirit ascending to heaven. That's not what we see in Caravaggio's version. Here there are no divine images, no angels, no supernatural, no upward feeling of movement to this other world, just this heavy grief for a very human death. The setting is quite poor. There are bare walls, um, wooden chairs that look more broken than not. Mary was dressed in the, with this red dress that was, would be worn either by prostitutes or at least, if we want to be generous, by contemporary working women in the 1600s in Rome. Her body seems to be in full rigor mortis. The model for this was, well, here is what happened. The one who had been his model for a really long time, Anna Bianchini, who was one of his first female models, she was found dead in the Tiber River around this time. There's debate on whether it was murder or suicide. But in either case, some people suggest that Caravaggio may have even just painted her actual corpse as a model for this, which would be disturbing in more ways than one. Now, the priests at the church, when he gave them this painting, they did not see any poetry in this. All they saw was just a poor, dirty hooker with bare feet, and they were very mad about what they consider lack of decorum and the extreme poverty of the whole scene. Um, some people, one of Caravaggio's contemporary, Giulio Mancini, said that the painting was rejected because Caravaggio had used a well-known prostitute as a model for the Virgin Mary. Baglione said that because uh, um, Mary's legs were bare, which was also considered kind of poor decorum, others suggest that it was more of a theological issue in the sense that this notion of showing Mary dead in an ordinary sense, rather than seeing her ascending to heaven, offended the priests. You know, we don't know which one was the reason, could be all of them, since Caravaggio managed to offend them in multiple different ways at the same time. But regardless, the painting was rejected, was uh, eventually sold to the Duke of Mantova, from there was later bought by the uh, King of England, and later was owned by the King of France. So that's a painting that did the rounds in European nobility, but was not accepted by the church. The political mood in Rome was as troubled as Caravaggio's own mood. During this period, there were major riots and street fighting between the pro-French supporters and the pro-Spanish supporters. Not that the average person really cared that much. It was more like the followers of various cardinals who were pro-France or pro-Spain would uh, just fight each other in the name of their respective cardinals and their political alliances. Caravaggio 
as always, in trouble. Uh, in one case, he decided that it was a good idea to throw rocks at the police when the police... He felt that the police had been harassing him and just targeting him, and so he decided to throw rocks at them, which is... Yeah, that always works. Uh, as usual, guys like Cardinal Del Monte to bend over backwards to try to get him... You know, he kept getting into trouble and they would get him out, get him into trouble and they would get him out. Uh, a month later, he was back in jail. Officially, he was arrested for carrying a weapon, but once they arrested him, he showed them that he had a license to carry the weapon, and just when the cops were about to let him go, he promptly told them to screw themselves, which again, not the wisest course of action when dealing with the police. But it's safe to say that he had a difficult relationship with authority. He was very touchy, always ready to throw down. He ended up in jail five times in a three-year span around this time. Um, some people suggest that this was not actually just him. I mean, he obviously was more than average, but that actually a lot of painters at this time had similar behavioral issues. And some people suggest that this was not just a cultural thing, that that's what painters did, but that many painters used um, some of their colors that they used were full of lead. And being exposed to lead all the time would have some impact on their mental stability and their, and their mood. Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, Caravaggio seemed like he was this way from day one. So, who knows? Again, we don't know enough about his early days to tell. But clearly this was not a recent thing. It seemed like recently, and by recently I mean the last couple of years that we've been discussing now, his mood was getting worse. And these kind of incidents were happening on a more regular basis. This had an impact on his art in the sense that between 1603 and 1606, he started getting less commissions than he was getting before. Many people considered him too dangerous. At the beginning of 1605, uh, Pope Clement, who had been Pope uh, almost ever since Caravaggio had been in Rome, died. And the death of a Pope was always a troubling time in Rome, because... Normal government would not function as long as a new pope was not elected, and Rome was basically in a state of lawlessness. Um, the lay officials, the, the heads of each neighborhood, would uh, administer justice during these troubled times, and city jails would be emptied as convicts would, get, uh, would receive an amnesty, and the political instability in town was very much palpable. The pro-French and the pro-Spanish factions couldn't agree on who the next pope should be. So, around this time, a big street battle broke out between these factions. Among them, one family that I mentioned their name before, I think was in the first part of this um, podcast series, I mentioned them again because they're going to be very important in Caravaggio's near future. The Tommasoni family, they were on the pro-Spain side, and one of them, Giovan Francesco, was the head of a neighborhood, and he controlled, he basically had his own gang. So Giovan Francesco, along with his brothers, which included Ranuccio Tommasoni, they, they had this, to give you an idea of how powerful these guys were, you know, when we say gang, what are we talking about? This guy had some serious powers. They had uh, dozens of men with them, with guns, with swords, with daggers, and they had a face-off with the police, 
because the police had just finished arresting some people because of participation in this riot that was taking place. And the Tommasoni brothers just went up to the police and said that they wanted the prisoners released in their custody. Some of the prisoners were allies that they wanted to free, and some were enemies that they wanted to kill. Now the police clearly was like, no, we're not going to do that, we're not going to release the prisoners to you. However, guns in your face and swords pointed against you are a very convincing argument, so eventually the cops decided, you know what, we'll look the other way and we'll just hand you these prisoners, do what you will with them. So this is an this is just to give you an idea of how important and powerful the Tommasoni gang was. Uh, if this story sounds a bit like a mafia story, it's basically because it is. But eventually, all sides agreed to the political neutral Camillo Borghese, who was elected as uh, Paul V. Um, Camillo's nephew, Scipione, was a cardinal. Camillo promptly made his nephew cardinal at only 27 years old. And Scipione was uh, a big fan of Caravaggio's work. So this is going to be important because he eventually introduced Caravaggio to the Pope, requesting that Caravaggio paint his portrait, which he did. Now, you don't think that a whole five minutes could go by without me going back to bringing up Caravaggio in trouble with the law, did you? Worry not, here we go again. In 1605, a notary by the name of Mariano Pasqualone accused him of attempted murder. Basically, well, let's look at what the story is. Caravaggio had been courting one of Rome's most famous courtesans, a woman by the name of Maddalena Antonietti, better known as Lena. And she had become, some people suggest that she had become his lover. Uh, she certainly had become his model uh, for several works. She had first modeled for him for a painting called Madonna of the Pilgrims. So yet again, Caravaggio has uh, selected a prostitute as a model for the Virgin Mary. And this was not just any prostitute. You know, you could get away maybe if you use somebody that nobody knew who wasn't very famous. Lena Antonietti was the who's who in the prostitution world in Rome. She had uh, had several cardinals among her clients. Everybody knew who she was, so there was no no way to paint her and have people see it and not recognize her. So that, you know, casting a known prostitute as the Virgin was a bit much. Also, as usual, she was dressed as a lower-class Roman woman in this painting and was portrayed outside of a poor house in front of peasants with dirty feet coming to worship her. You know, all the characteristics that were not exactly designed to attract church approval. Some people here speculate that Caravaggio was openly challenging the church hypocrisy and monstrous appetite for wealth. The fact that he kept doing it over and over again despite... um, negative responses from the church seem to indicate that this was not a coincidence. This was not something that he was doing because he didn't know any better. It seemed like he wanted to do this to make a point. Now, but back to the attempted murder charge. What does this have to do with it? Well, what we know is that Pasqualone had been trying to convince Lena to marry him. And Lena wouldn't have him. 
So Pasqualone had visited Lina's mother and basically yelled at her until she started breaking down in tears. Because Pasqualone essentially told her, you are a terrible mother. You know, he was very upset and jealous of the fact that Lena preferred Caravaggio to him. And so he started yelling at Lena's mother saying, you know, I can't believe you let your daughter spend time with, uh, I quote in his word was, he referred to Caravaggio as a cursed man, which is probably a fitting definition for Caravaggio. Lena's mom freaked out because she felt attacked and Caravaggio, as a result, after he found out, well, let's have a quick multiple choice test. What do you think Caravaggio is going to do? You think Caravaggio is going to say, hmm, Mr. Pasqualone, we clearly have a misunderstanding here and we should sit down and iron out our differences. Option B, would he just decide, you know, Lena, Pasqualone is right. He's trying to make of you a respectable woman. What do I have to offer? Go with him, it's better. Or C, he goes looking for him with an axe. If you chose C, you are correct. He went out looking for him, carrying a hatchet. He found him in front of the palace of the Spanish ambassador in Piazza Navona. That's, by the way, one of the awesome things about walking through Rome, is that you see all the very places where all these events took, uh, took place. You see the exact locations, which is kind of cool. In any case, he found him there in Piazza Navona, hit him with an axe, Pasqualone started bleeding everywhere and ran off before Caravaggio could finish him off. He rushed to the, uh, rushed to the cops, and uh, Pasqualone gave this testimony right after the attack. I quote, As Mr. Galeazzo and I were strolling in the Piazza Navona in front of the palace of the Spanish ambassador, I suddenly felt a blow on the back of my head. I fell to the ground at once and realized that I had been wounded in the head by what I believed to have been the stroke of a sword. I didn't see who wounded me, but I never had disputes with anybody but the said Michelangelo. A few nights ago, he and I had wards on the Corso on account of a girl called Lena, who is to be found at the Piazza Navona, past the palace. She's Michelangelo's girl. Please excuse me quickly that I may dress my wounds now. This, uh, those words in this testimony, when he says she's Michelangelo's girl, could mean a couple of things. Could mean that Lena was his girlfriend, or could mean that Lena's was uh, a prostitute. I mean, we know that she was a prostitute. It could mean that she was a prostitute for Michelangelo, meaning that uh, the Caravaggio was uh, her pimp. I mentioned, I think it was in episode one, the whole discussion about the possibility of Caravaggio being a pimp. This testimony, unfortunately, doesn't really shed light either way, because his reference about she's Michelangelo's girl could refer to either a love relationship or his girl in the sense of one of the prostitutes that he protected. We don't know this. In any case, Caravaggio decided that the law was too close to him by now, so he fled the city, he left for Genova, where he rubbed elbows with the nobility there, did some work for them, and re-established a connection with the Colonna family, who had been... Uh, 
who had been sort of patrons of his own family very early on when Caravaggio was still a kid. In particular, he reinforced a connection with Costanza Colonna, who ends up being somewhat of a mother figure to him. In a telling comment regarding Caravaggio's personality, around this time there was an agent for the Duke of Modena had been trying to find Caravaggio because they had paid him for a painting that he hadn't delivered yet. And so he went, this agent for the Duke of Modena, went to visit Cardinal Del Monte and said, hey, you know, where can we get Caravaggio? I hear he's in Genova, what's going on? And Del Monte replied, one can give very few assurances about him. He's a very odd person. Which again, truer words could not be spoken about Caravaggio. He's a very odd person. Well, that's safe to say. Um, he also told them that, at, you know, just a few weeks before, he had refused a huge commission to decorate the Doria residence in Genova, the residence of the most important family in Genova. And yet, at other times, he seemed to be willing to do anything for money. You know, one second he would be just fighting over pennies, and the next second he would reject fortunes. So, not the easiest to predict. Now, while Caravaggio is in Genova, the notary Pasqualone decided to, for reasons that we ignore, we don't know why, but he decided to withdraw the charges against Caravaggio. Now, my imagination goes wild here, and I can picture a godfather deal by Caravaggio's friends paying a visit to Pasqualone, and giving him the famous offer that you can refuse. Um, in my imagination, the offer goes something like, here is a bag with some money, you can take it and withdraw the charges, or we can kill you and dump your body in the sewers, up to you. Maybe this is what happened, maybe not. In either case, Pasqualone withdrew the charges, and uh, Caravaggio ducked another bullet. Deciding the not testifying the not pressing charges against Caravaggio is conducive to one's health seemed to be something that was a popular opinion at this time in Rome because right after making his peace with Pasqualone Caravaggio had been sued by his landlady she was pretty mad over the fact that he hadn't paid rent for a few months and uh, she locked him out of the house in which he was living at this time, so Caravaggio threw rocks at her window. So for this she sued, and she brought a whole string of witnesses to testify that Caravaggio had done this. Also she was mad that Caravaggio had broken up the ceiling in the apartment in order to create more light for his paintings, for his chiaroscuro effect. Problem is that when she brought all these witnesses, they all developed amnesia on the way to talking with the cops. Suddenly, all these people that were to corroborate her story, they were like, I know nothing, Caravaggio, what? Again, likely they were scared of Caravaggio and friends. His illegal activities and the mystery surrounding him continues around this time. In late 1605, Caravaggio was found wounded, with a wound next to his neck and ear. So, some cops and notaries were sent to his house, 
asking him what had happened. They wanted to investigate, you know, was there a brawl? Was there, I mean, clearly he had been wounded with a sword. So likely this was the result of some big fight. But when they asked Caravaggio what happened, here is what he replied. I wounded myself with my sword as I fell down the stairs. And I don't know where this took place and there was no one there. I mean, talk about the most ridiculous excuse ever, right? This is like the dog ate my homework kind of thing. It's uh, So something had happened. Caravaggio had been in a big fight. But he probably preferred to handle his vengeance on his own as opposed to turning to the cops. Now, at this time, which seems a low time for him, something happened that was huge. You know, Caravaggio won the most prestigious commission that he had ever had in his life and that he would ever have. He was asked to paint for a part of St. Peter, at the altar of the Palafranieri. Scipione Borghese had convinced his uncle, the Pope Paul V, that despite his reputation, Caravaggio could be trusted to paint a virgin for St. Peter. This is the commission that any painter would kill for. And if only Caravaggio could hold the reins of his fiery temper and tone down a little bit the scandalous aspects of his style, this opportunity could open the door to becoming the Pope's number one painter. So he has right there within Caravaggio's reach is the goal that every single artist in Europe dreams of. All he has to do is conform to a slightly more orthodox vision of Christianity and avoid rocking the boat. Not that difficult, right? Well, let's think again what I just said. Caravaggio, not rocking the boat. Yeah, right. You see the problem here. Problem is that Caravaggio's allergy to the hypocrisy of the powerful and to their little political gains had reached an all-time high. He simply could not bring himself to being a good boy who painted religious images according to a sanitized version of Christianity. His friends quickly realized that trouble was brewing when he asked Lena to be the model for the Virgin Mary again. Now, the interpretation of the story he was supposed to paint, the one he gave, as you may imagine, considering his style, he gave the grittiest and most brutal interpretation. What he was supposed to paint was the Virgin Mary along with a very young baby Jesus as well as uh, Saint Anne together casting aside the devil who appeared to them in the shape of a snake. So in itself is not a terrible story, you know, there's no violence, it can be it could be done in a relatively safe way, but again that's not Caravaggio. So what he did instead, he painted the Virgin Mary in the act of squashing a viper under her feet with the help of a butt-naked baby Jesus in full glorious frontal nudity. Uh, Lena's generous cleavage was showing. The Virgin had her skirt hitched up like a poor Roman washerwoman. Rather than showing kind of the symbol of the Virgin Mary pushing aside a servant of the devil. What we have here is Lena looking like a peasant killing a viper uh, in the street. Both Jesus and Mary lack any sign of divinity, 
and Saint Anne looks like an old wrinkled gypsy. Caravaggio again was pushing a very plebeian interpretation of the origin of Christianity that was designed to connect his work with people on the streets, not with purple-robed cardinals. This was the ultimate visual middle finger to the wealth and power cult that the church had become around this time. Once the painting was unveiled, scandal was, I mean, there was no way to avoid it. It was just capturing the impressions of the church elite. One of the cardinal secretaries wrote, I quote, We find nothing in this picture but vulgarity, sacrilege, impiety, and disgust. It would seem to be the work of a painter who knows his craft, but whose spirit lies in darkness, who has long been far removed from God and adoration of God and from all good thoughts. Yeah, pretty much. The um, writer Roberto Longhi wrote the following that's also very fitting for this. He wrote, Why was it precisely when appeal was being made to his sense of responsibility and his ambition that Caravaggio felt impelled to adopt the most brutal interpretation? In fact, though he knew the subject was linked to the liturgical symbol of the Immaculate Conception, the dominant tone of the work is strongly plebeian. Saint Anne is an old gypsy. The Virgin has her skirts rolled up like a washerwoman, and Christ is as naked as the day he was born. Why did he thus put everything at risk? Rejection was inevitable. So, the painting was exposed for just a few days before they took it down, and the doors to St. Peter were closed for good. Scipione Borghese bought the painting for his own private collection, but in terms of getting commissions from the Pope from now on, well, Caravaggio could kiss it goodbye. Okay, now we come to the event destined to change the rest of Caravaggio's life. I mean, what just happened with this painting was a pretty big deal, but it's nothing compared to what's about to happen. What I'm referring to is the deadly showdown with Ranuccio Tommasoni on Campo Marzio, May 29, 1606. May 29 was the anniversary of the coronation of the Pope. So it was a holiday, there were festive processions in the streets, fireworks by Castel Sant'Angelo. Uh, while everyone was partying in the streets, eight deadly serious men made their way to a tennis court in Campo Marzio. The official story is that this fight that breaks out took place uh, as a result of a conflict while they were playing tennis. Uh, the story goes that Caravaggio accused his opponent Ranuccio of cheating and they got into a fight. But almost certainly this is not true. Or rather, that's a convenient cover for the truth. Um, dueling was illegal. If, uh, if they were busted for dueling, they could be executed. On the other hand, a fight that would break out spontaneously, it's kind of the difference between having a first-degree murder charge and having a manslaughter charge if you end up killing somebody. One indicates intention before the fact. One is, oh, we got caught up in the moment, one thing led to another. So likely this was not during a tennis match. This was, you know, in something that looked like 
duel at the OK Corral or something with four men on each side. This was a duel, a prearranged duel. On Ranuccio's side were two of his brothers-in-law and his own brother, Giovan Francesco. On Caravaggio's side, there was the soldier Petronio Toppa, um, and another man by the name of Paolo Aldato, and his companion in all of his most sordid adventures, Honorio Longhi, the architect Honorio Longhi. They were there to serve as seconds and witnesses for this duel between Caravaggio and Ranuccio Tommasoni. As I mentioned earlier, Ranuccio was from a rich family, but he was very much part of the Roman underworld. He was a pimp, he was a gang leader. What was this fight about? Some people argue that it was over Philide, uh, the prostitute that Caravaggio used in uh, many of his paintings. Some people suggest that Caravaggio was defending her from Tommasoni's abuse. Some were saying that Caravaggio was also a pimp trying to steal the best courtesan in town from Tommasoni. Some believed that Ranuccio was just mad over the fact that Philippe kept uh, working as a model for Caravaggio. Others suggest that Caravaggio had, had an affair with Ranuccio's wife, Lavinia. And it's possible that the episode that I told you just a few minutes ago regarding Caravaggio being wounded and not wanting to tell authorities who had done this was connected with this duel with Ranuccio at this time. It may be that there had been part one. We don't know, really. I mean, it, this is all speculation, of course. We don't know. Um, Ranuccio and Caravaggio bump into each other multiple times. They clearly didn't like each other. What caused this specific duel remains a mystery. But once the duel began, which sometimes, you know, when we say these things, it's like, oh, they got into a duel. It's so... It's easy to forget the emotional aspect of it all. I mean, thinking about how you would feel... How many beats per minute would you get if you know that you're going to get into a deadly fight in a few minutes? You walk up, your opponent has his guys with him, you have your guys with him, everybody's going to stop and look at the two of you, draw some very sharp, long swords, and the two of you are going to go at it where the tiniest lack of attention, you know, a fraction of a second where you're less than perfect could result in having some very sharp steel being driven through your body. Sometimes it makes you wonder, like, how, how do these guys even handle the emotional pressure? You know, this is intense stuff. It's, in any case, obviously they did, and Caravaggio in particular did, because in the course of the fight he was able to knock down Ranuccio and Caravaggio went in for the kill. He didn't just try to stab him in the heart or finish him that way. Caravaggio, I'm trying to find a polite way of saying it, but basically he tried to castrate him. Uh, Tommasoni managed to deflect the blow, but that did not help him that much because rather than castrating it, the Caravaggio sword ended up slicing Ranuccio's femoral artery. So he starts bleeding everywhere. In that moment, when he sees his brothers going down, Giovan Francesco, who was Ranuccio's second, broke the rules of the duel and attacked Caravaggio, wounding him. So Caravaggio's second, Petronio Toppa, stepped in and got into a big fight with Giovan Francesco. He was wounded multiple times in the thigh, sheen, arms. 
So eventually the two groups break away. Ranuccio's friends lift his body off the ground and carry him to a nearby barber surgeon. I know, that sounds weird, right? Barbers or barbers, surgeons or surgeons. Well, that's today. Back then, being a surgeon and being a barber was basically one and the same. Eh, you handle razor and knives anyway, so if you're good with one, you're probably good with the other. That was the thinking of the day. So they bring him there to see if this guy can save his life. Unknowingly, they're actually reenacting a painting of Caravaggio that was hanging nearby in a church not far from where they fought, showing a body being carried away, much the way they were carrying Ranuccio's body away. Um, the barber surgeon did not help, and uh, Ranuccio died shortly thereafter due to loss of blood. At this point, everybody associated with the duel fled Rome, uh, trying to avoid the inevitable legal crackdown that was to come. Caravaggio went in hiding, you know, Costanza Colonna helped him escape Rome, and he went into a property that she had only 20 miles from Rome. While they were all gone, Caravaggio was sentenced to death. It's highly likely that the influence of the Tommasoni family was enough that this time they prevailed over all the Del Monte subjection, all of Caravaggio's patrons that tried to help him. This time they, they just couldn't. The Tommasoni family got what they wanted and they got a death sentence being passed against Caravaggio. Since Caravaggio was not under arrest, this meant that anybody could find him and kill him with impunity, wherever they found him, and they would be rewarded since there was a price on his head. From this point forward, Caravaggio develops an obsession with painting himself beheaded. This will continue for the rest of his life. After this duel, he'll paint himself a total of six times with his head cut off, in, you know, some David with the head of Goliath, in which he cast himself as Goliath, in other subjects, but he regularly paints himself with his head cut off. He sent a David with the head of Goliath that he um, painted around this time to Scipione Borghese, the Pope's nephew, hoping to bribe him to try to get a pardon, but it's clearly not enough, or at least not, not at this time. And while he's on the run, uh, among the other paintings that he does at this time, while he's on the run, he paints uh, Mary Magdalene in ecstasy. Uh, just going by memory, he just paints Lena as Mary Magdalene. And, you know, this what's supposed to be this religious ecstasy looks more like a sexual orgasm, but in any case, that's what, um, that's what he does at this time. He's trying to distract himself, but clearly heavy things are on his mind because this time he has gone a step too far. The murder of Ranuccio Tommasoni makes him a fugitive, makes him wanted by the law and makes him a target for anybody who wants to make some money, kill him, cut off his head and bring him back to Rome in order to get paid in gold coins. Despite Caravaggio's attempt to convince Scipione Borghese to intercede for him, Clearly, the Tommasoni family was too powerful, and they were able to use their influence to prevent uh, Caravaggio receiving a pardon. So, lacking other options, Caravaggio decided to go to Naples instead. Uh, so, left Rome, headed for Naples. Naples was the largest city in southern Europe at this time. 
It uh, was kind of a messy, crazy place. There were thousands upon thousands of slaves. It was a very active slave trade in Naples. Uh, the city was under Spanish domination, and the Spanish ruler just squeezed Naples out of every money they could steal. So there was tremendous poverty among the lower classes. And in order to avoid the riots, the Spanish ruler had a free distribution of corn just to make sure people stayed above starvation line. But the whole, the whole environment was a pretty tough, tense environment. Um, unlike many other places, Naples feature very tall buildings, so not a whole lot of sunlight uh, went through much of the city. While in Naples, um, Caravaggio got to work and started receiving some commissions there. He worked on a few masterpieces, one known as the Seven Acts of Mercy, another one was a Flagellation of Christ, um, he had a huge impact on uh, the local painting scenes, um, and in the meantime, there was exhibition of his works was done in Rome, so Caravaggio's fame was growing, despite the fact that he has a death sentence hanging over him. While he was in Naples, the whole showdown with Baglione wasn't fully done, even though Caravaggio was not present in Rome. Baglione accused Caravaggio of having hired a guy to kill him in Rome right after Baglione left church. He was attacked by a young painter uh, who tried to kill him as he left Mass. And what had happened was that, according to Baglione, he said that this painter was a henchman of Caravaggio, sent to get rid of him. In Baglione's own words, They are my enemies and partisans of Caravaggio, who is my enemy. And once they had killed me, they would have taken the news to Caravaggio, who would have rewarded them. Here he's referring to this particular painter, this Carlo Bodello, who had tried to kill him, as well as several of Caravaggio's friends, who probably had similar designs. Now, some people think that Baglione is running with his fantasy, that it's unlikely that Bodello was really a Caravaggio's hitman, but you never know. You know, there's a tale indicating that they may have wanted to kill Baglione, because... Uh, one of the main art academies in Rome, of which Baglione was the president, had the power to pardon a convicted criminal once a year. So their thinking was, if we get rid of Baglione and have him killed, then we put somebody else who's friendlier to us as president, then the academy could use its power to cancel Caravaggio's sentence and have him pardoned. But this is obviously not going to happen as long as Baglione is the president of the academy, so let's kill him and be done with it. Again, maybe, maybe not. It's hard to know for sure what was going on, but that's at least what Baglione reported. By July 1607, Caravaggio was on the move again. This is probably the result of a plan hatched by Costanza Colonna, the lady who, as I mentioned, had been... Uh, sort of a mother figure for him, and who had protected him. She was the one who had him, uh, um, helped him to escape Rome, and she had been an ally for quite a while now. What happened was this. Costanza had several sons, and one of them, Fabrizio Sforza Colonna, was... He had led a bit of a wild life, so he went from being a celebrity to a criminal, much like Caravaggio. 
due to some unspecified crime. We don't exactly know what it was. In 1602, uh, Fabrizio had been sentenced, and in an effort to escape punishment, he went to Malta. Why Malta? Because in Malta there were the appropriately named Knights of Malta. The Knights of Malta were a religious military order, and they were the spear point of the Catholic fight against Muslims in the Mediterranean Sea. They had been part of major wars against the Ottoman Empire in the previous years, and through their strict discipline the Knights offered a road to redemption, to trouble the young nobles looking to rehabilitate their names. This is exactly what had happened with Fabrizio. Fabrizio had uh, gone there, had served the knights, had eventually managed to become one of the knights, and as a result of the services rendered, um, the head of the Order of the Knights of Malta was able to petition the Pope to have Fabrizio pardoned. So Costanza figure, if he works for Fabrizio, my own son, maybe can work for Caravaggio as well. Granted, he does not have noble blood, but he has other talents. Maybe we can convince the head of the Knights of Malta to, you know, to serve him and to eventually receive a pardon. Fabrizio, in the meantime, had gone to become the main general in charge of uh, the Knights of Malta's navy. And at this very time, he was leading his ships back to Malta. So, after a request from his mom, he stopped in Naples to pick up Caravaggio and take him with him to Malta. The journey was a dangerous one, since Muslim pirates had it for Fabrizio. They were looking for Fabrizio's ships, particularly because he was carrying a cargo of Muslim slaves with him. So despite the fact that everybody had their swords handy and were ready to fight at any moment, um, Fabrizio and Caravaggio managed to reach Malta without incident. Forty years earlier, Malta had been the site of one of the greatest battles pitting Christians against Muslims in the 1500s. The 1565 Great Siege of Malta was, uh, was a dramatic event that was uh, celebrated in European history for decades to come. What had happened was that Solomine the Magnificent, the head of the Ottoman Empire, had sent thousands upon thousands of his troops to take over Malta and be able to um, wrest it away from Christian control. Against all odds, the knights of Malta were able to repel the forces of Solomon during this dramatic siege. The siege had been as brutal as it could possibly get. You know, on one end you had uh, the Turks floated the bodies of decapitated knights on wooden crucifixes in the Great Arbor of Malta. The Grand Master of the Knights of Malta responded by ordering his men to load his cannons with the severed heads of Turkish fighters and shoot them on them as psychological intimidation beside being a weapon. So thousands died on both sides during this siege, but eventually the Ottoman had to give up. By the time Caravaggio reached Malta, many of the rocks of the islands were still stained with blood dating from 40 years earlier from the siege. So by now the knights had a, 
amazing reputation throughout Europe. Many young men of the European nobility dreamed of being able to join the knights. For Caravaggio, trying to enter the order, trying to become part of it, was a bit tricky because, technically speaking, the order was only open to people who had noble blood. Caravaggio did not, so his relationship with the knights was a little tricky. Some of them were very welcoming to him, others looked down upon him due, his, uh, due to his low-born status. So now Caravaggio had this tricky task of figuring out how to get into the good graces of uh, the Grand Master of the Order. The Grand Master was a man by the name of Alof de Wignacourt. Actually, I'm completely making up the pronunciation because it's a French name. And French is one of those languages that's extremely mysterious to me. When often you, I see words in which there are about 32 letters written down and they pronounce about two of them. So I'm slightly confused by French, so apologies for my horrible pronunciation. I'll stick to Alof, which seems safe enough to pronounce. In any case, the Grand Master was open to listening what Caravaggio had to offer, but clearly, you know, Caravaggio had a few strikes against him. He was a wanted man, he had no noble blood, he had no money to his name, so what could he offer? Well, clearly not his charming personality or his skills as a diplomatic peacemaker. Caravaggio had one thing he could offer. He could paint like a god. That's what he could offer. So his only hope was the the grandmaster would have a soft spot for painting. And luckily for Caravaggio, he did. As a result of the grandmaster being very impressed with Caravaggio's skills, he began some delicate diplomatic negotiations with the Pope in order to allow Caravaggio to join the Knights. He phrased these letters very well. He never mentioned Caravaggio by name. He just said, uh, would, uh, would you be okay if I grant access to the order to two men? Uh, there was somebody else who uh, he was inquiring about. One of them has killed somebody in a brawl, but is a great man, and, you know, went on without naming Caravaggio directly, but basically going in a roundabout way to try to get permission to have him admitted to the order. And eventually, you know, this took months of negotiations back and forth, eventually the Pope granted permission. So Caravaggio joined the order on probation. He became what was known as an apprentice knight, which meant that he would have to stick to all the rules and did everything for one year before he could be fully accepted as a member of the order. All the knights were required to pay a pretty substantial fee for being admitted into the order, and Caravaggio clearly did not have the money. However, the Grand Master allowed him to paint instead. He would just donate his works to the knights, and that would be good enough. He was allowed to enter, the knights were divided in separate orders. Caravaggio was allowed to enter in what was known as a knight of obedience, which was actually a good deal for Caravaggio, since unlike some of the other orders of the knights, these did not require him to take vows of chastity or poverty or similar things. Particularly when we talk about a vow of chastity, it's safe to say that things would have not gone well for Caravaggio in that department. So... He was lucky in that sense. Clearly the Grand Master liked him and was trying everything possible to make things easier for him. At this time, the Grand Master commissioned him 
the most important work that he did while in Malta. Uh, the beheading of St. John. So another martyrdom scene that Caravaggio delivered in his usual brutal fashion. Uh, this very large painting was to be hanged in the oratory that the knights used. It was the place where they would uh, administer sacraments, where they would conduct criminal trials, and the beheading of St. John would hang there for all to see. This one is the only painting that Caravaggio ever signed. And the way he signs it is pretty interesting. He uses what in the painting looks like is the blood squirting out of uh, St. John's neck. He uses it to sign his name in it, which is interesting. It reminds me of a quote of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. This is probably not only my favorite Friedrich Nietzsche's quote, this is one of my favorite quotes, period. It's one of, for my own personal taste, one of the greatest lines ever written. So, drum roll, it's a big deal. What's the quote? Nietzsche wrote in Das Buch Zarathustra, he wrote, Of all that is written, I only love what the man has written with his blood. Now, how good is that of a quote? Of all that is written, I only love what a man has written with his blood. I love, love, love this quote. I used it at the beginning of my latest book, Not Afraid. Uh, incidentally, don't read it if casting offense you. I always try to keep this podcast as clean as possible so that people can, you know, your great-grandma can listen to it as well as my book, Not Afraid, not quite as clean. So again, if certain language offends you, do not read it. If you are not disturbed by it, on the other hand, by all means, please check it out. And I use this Nietzsche quote because it's just, I mean, the idea that the only thing that counts, the only thing that's truly, you know, people can talk about this and that, can offer opinion, can, but the only thing that really matters is the stuff that you have lived that comes out of your guts, that comes out of your blood and muscle, is the experience that you have lived on your skin. Is uh, I can't, you know, I can easily go on off on a tangent, so I won't. I'll shut up here. But in any case, this is this particular use of blood. Of, for Caravan, that Caravaggio makes to sign his name in this painting reminds me of this Nietzsche quote. The Grand Master was very pleased with this work, so he rewarded Caravaggio with a gold chain, which again, keeping up with our rap analogies, that's pretty interesting here, we have Caravaggio sporting his gold chains. He doesn't have gold teeth either, but you know, I'm sure that would have been next in line. And along with the gold chain, he gets uh, two female slaves as a way for the Grandmaster to say thank you. Sound great, right? He just got admitted to the order in 1608. Uh, the Grandmaster loves him. Everything is going smoothly for Caravaggio. It looks like he may be able to get a pardon at some point. But we're talking about Caravaggio here. His demons were never far off. They... It's the nature of his existence that his demons don't let him enjoy peace and success for too long. So shortly after being accepted as a full member of the order, Caravaggio, along with five companions, is involved in an attack against another knight named Giovanni Rodomonte Roero, who was Conte della Vezza, so nobleman, and we don't know why this fight took place. We don't know what Roero had done to get them mad. It looks like somebody went 
years later in Malta and made a lot of the records of these events disappear. So we don't know what went on. What we do know is that Caravaggio and his other five guys attacked him and wounded him. And that is a problem, because Roero's family is too powerful and the Grandmaster is out of option. So Caravaggio is really not likely to be forgiven for this. So off to jail he goes on the very same day when he was supposed to attend the unveiling of his painting, The Beheading of St. John, instead he goes off to jail. Graham Dixon has the following to say about this. With hindsight, it looks like a complete act of self-sabotage, as if he could not bear the thought of truly belonging and of walking the corridors of power. In some way Caravaggio reminds me there's a Johnny Cash song, uh, Folsom Prison Blues, beautiful song, and there's a line there that Johnny Cash wrote that says, when I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns, but I shot a man in Reno, just to watch him die. I don't know why, but every time I hear that song, I, hear, I think of Caravaggio. It seems like Caravaggio just can't help himself and he's just a master at screwing things up. You're like the number one enemy of success in his own life is himself. He's a master at screwing up his own life. And here is yet another example of this. You know, things could go smoothly, but who knows what it is that provoked this incident. In any case, Caravaggio can restrain himself and he's involved in this attack against a nobleman. Now, some, as I mentioned earlier, some people argue that maybe too much lead in the paint made him a little crazy. Some people argue that Caravaggio was probably dealing with some extremely heavy PTSD. I mean, even we don't know everything about his life, and just the stuff that we do know is traumatic enough to make you think that it would be almost impossible for him not to be affected by some heavy PTSD. I mean, when he was only like four or five years old, he saw... Just about all of the men in his family die of plague. Uh, his mom died when he was still very young. He grew up in an extremely violent society. He was involved in fighting very early on. And again, some of it of his own choosing, particularly later on. But who knows how much this affected him early on, how much of it was a choice or not. So he certainly had reasons to have some, some issues. Other people may argue this was just in his nature. You know, yeah, lots of people in this society were affected by heavy things. Life back then was rough. So maybe, maybe it's that artist dilemma. You know, the very same hypersensitivity which makes him an amazing artist. The same hypersensitivity that's often at the roots of most people who are artistic geniuses is also the same quality that unless you are able to master it, it can drive you a bit crazy. You know, having a larger-than-life personality is not always a good thing. It can be a blessing if you learn how to handle it, or it can be a curse if you do not. This topic of hypersensitivity is probably one of the reasons why I'm most attracted to the Caravaggio story. It's one of the things that 
I've seen time, I mean, I certainly have experienced it myself. I've seen it time and time again among some of the people that I'm most interested in. I even wrote about it in my very first book called On the Warrior's Path. I deal with this a little bit. You know, actually, I'm just going to read you a quick passage from it um, to convey why this is a big deal to me and why I feel that Caravaggio was struggling with this very issue. Now, maybe I'm projecting. Maybe that's not what was going on. Again, we don't know. We're talking about a guy who has been dead for more than 400 years and we're going on limited evidence. But that, to me, seems likely. In any case, it is what I wrote in On the Warrior's Path in the very last chapter. Occasionally, I stumble upon somebody who has met face-to-face the same raw emotions I play with. Too sensitive to be normal and fit in with the surrounding staleness. They often spend their early lives riding on an emotional roller coaster that leaves them battered and bruised and wondering why no one around them experiences the world the way they do. Actually, you could say that all the people I've ever been interested in, at some point in their lives, had to grapple with issues and feelings, threatening their mental balance and shaking them to the very core of their beings. An intense hypersensitivity, in fact, is both a blessing and a curse. If you can find balance, experiencing a greater emotional range gives you a chance to feel on your skin everything everyone else feels and more. If you can surf on those giant waves without losing your balance, you will have access to powers unknown to common human beings. If not, you will drown in a notion of emotions that are too powerful for your heart and mind to take. Being normal is not a choice at this point. For whatever reason, you are born on top of that giant wave. The only issue here is whether you will be able to ride it or if you will sink to the bottom of the ocean and become food for the fish. This is probably why I like Caravaggio, because I feel that his personality, from what we can gather from the sources, is very much a a classic example of this. Somebody who has emotions that are too large for his body to contain, whose whose emotional range is just too intense. And that's probably why he paints the way he does. Uh, You don't get to paint the way Caravaggio does by being a normal person. You don't. And again, being... Not being normal can be a great thing, can be a bad thing. In some cases, it's both at the same time, and that's clearly what's going on with Caravaggio. I mean, it's hard to argue. I don't get the feeling that Caravaggio would be the guy I want to hang out with on a daily basis. His personality seemed disturbed, difficult, chaotic, messy, amazing, powerful, a genius, not exactly somebody who lives in peace and harmony. But that's that's the game with a lot of people who are geniuses. It takes a extra level to be able to master those emotions to so that you can actually enjoy uh, the comforts of a happy life and not just the super highs and super lows that go uh, hand in hand with this type of personality. His biographer Bellori writes... Because of his tormented nature, he lost his prosperity and the support of the Grand Master. On account of an ill-considered quarrel with a noble knight, he was jailed, 
and reduced to a state of misery and fear. And I think here Bellori nails it, you know, because of his tormented nature. That's certainly what's going on with Caravaggio. So off to jail Caravaggio goes. And he's thrown, you know, the jail for the knights is not exactly a comfy place. He's thrown into an underground cell carved 11 feet deep into the rock. It looks pretty much impossible to escape. Caravaggio just sits there in his cell, just reading on the walls around him, the writing and the graffiti left by countless prisoners before him. And, you know, things don't look easy at this point. You know, escape looks pretty much impossible, since it would require him to break out of his cell, climb through the castle, make his way down a 200-foot precipice until reaching the sea, swim to a ship, board it, and make his way off the island. Well, as it turns out, that's exactly what Caravaggio does. In doing so, Caravaggio breaks one of the cardinal rules of the knights, that is, they were not allowed to leave Malta without authorization, or otherwise they would be expelled from the order. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, days later, the knights will attend a ceremony in which um, Caravaggio's clothing will be removed from a stool, uh, symbolically uh, indicating he's being kicked out of the order. And ironically, the ceremony takes place right before his beheading of St. John in the oratory. And so Caravaggio is on the run yet again. It's highly likely that somebody helped him escape, maybe Fabrizio Colonna, maybe the Grandmaster himself. You know, he clearly could not pardon him, but he obviously had a soft spot for Caravaggio. Who knows how, but he managed to board this ship and head to Sicily. And in Sicily, he's going to spend a few months hopping from place to place. He's going to spend some time in Syracuse, then Messina, then Palermo. Here, he reconnected with his old friend, Mario Minniti. Mario had uh, moved back to Sicily from Rome a few years prior. If you remember, Mario had been one of Caravaggio's earliest models, one of his very first friends in Rome. And, uh, however, he had decided that Caravaggio's adventures were getting a little too rough for his taste, so he had left his crew. But they had left in good terms, so that now that Caravaggio reaches Sicily, he, they reconnect rekindle their friendship, and Mario actually helps him get several commissions. You know, he introduces Caravaggio to some of his own patrons who will give Caravaggio some work. Now, during this time, Caravaggio's PTSD is kicking into high gear. You know, he's uh, wanted now by multiple people. The, the Pope's guards are after him. The Tommasoni family, likely that they send people after him. Knights of Malta have people after him. Roero, the guy he wounded it in Malta, probably has people after him. So, not surprisingly, he's not at his most relaxed state. And so, because he wasn't weird enough already, he just got this black dog named Corvo, literally the crow, which followed him everywhere, and he slept fully clothed with a dagger under his bed. There's a story that gives you a window into his mindset at this time. Uh, he was painting uh, Resurrection of Lazarus, 
So painting this scene where the dead body of Lazarus is being resurrected by Jesus. And in order to be realistic, he had a corpse used as a model. And the workers were in charge of helping him. They were in charge of holding it up in a certain position, this corpse, so that Caravaggio could paint it. They decided that maybe the money wasn't good enough because the corpse was in an advanced state of decomposition. It just stunk too much and they just did not want to do it. So Caravaggio, being the fine diplomat that he was, he jumped at them. He pulled out his knife, put it to their throat and said that unless they kept holding the body up, he would just cut their throats right then and there. Yeah, exactly. It's around this time that the anecdote with which I opened the first episode about Caravaggio take place, when uh, during a visit to a church, a priest offered Caravaggio holy water, and as I mentioned at the beginning of episode one, Caravaggio asked the priest, what is this good for? What is it going to do for me? And the priest replied, it will cancel your venial sins, my son. And Caravaggio said, well, then it's no use to me. My sins are all mortal. By now, you know, when we started uh, the series, you may have thought that this was flamboyant, that it was an exaggeration, that Caravaggio was being a bit dramatic. By now, I think you get the feeling that he was just speaking the truth here. One of the paintings that he did at this time was a nativity with St. Francis and St. Lawrence that he did in 1609. The painting has an interesting story in the sense that in recent times, in 1969, the painting was stolen from a church where it was located in Sicily at the orders of a mafia boss in Palermo. Uh, Right now, the theft of this painting, which has never been found since, is still in the FBI top 10 art crimes. They are still looking for it. Not so long ago, there was... um, a member of the mafia who had been arrested was currently living in the U.S. as a protected witness, admitted to personally removing it, and other arrested mafiosos have stated that it was displayed during mafia meetings among bosses, you know, when they would have these uh, meetings among the heads of some of the various mafia family, they would, they would meet in front of this Caravaggio painting. The convicted mafia killer Giovanni Brusco said that he had tried to negotiate the return of the painting in exchange for a lighter sentence. But then others had said that it was destroyed due to poor preservation. No one knows for sure. Uh, but it's an interesting tale about this one Caravaggio masterpiece who was uh, uh, stolen by the mafia in the late 60s and never since has been on the, on the FBI watch for some of the great artworks that have uh, that are currently missing one of caravaggio's biographers susino has this to write about caravaggio's personality they said that his spirit was i quote more disturbed than the sea of messina with its raging currents that sometimes rise and sometimes fall in some way this looks like a description you know it's sort of bipolar personality 101 And uh, again, we can speculate about what was going on with Caravaggio, but it's safe to say that he was was pretty troubled. Now, after a few months in Sicily, Caravaggio returned to Naples in 1609. 
and he was a guest at the palace of Costanza Colonna. There he his paintings grow more and more melancholic as time goes by. Um, he seemed to put himself in a lot of his paintings. Uh, Graham Dixon has this to say about it. He says, whenever he set out to paint the death of a martyr, the infancy of Christ or his resurrection, he always ended up painting himself. Well, things take a turn for the dramatic in late 1609, when he visits a place known as Osteria del Cerriglio. The Osteria was one of the most famous taverns in Naples, and for that matter in Europe, and was renowned both as a place for great drinking, as a brothel, as, uh, you know, all the walls were covered in proverbs celebrating the joys of wine and food and sex. It was uh, many artists used these as their headquarters, as their meeting place. So Caravaggio is there doing his thing, and he leaves the tavern, and waiting for him in the streets are four men. Um, during the course of the fight that follows, he, they cut his face, uh, leaving a very heavy scar on his face. He's attacked, wounded, and left for dead in the streets. Who are these people who attacked him? Well, take a number, you know, it could be anybody. It could be Tommasoni's henchmen, it could be men sent by Roero, the nobleman whom he had wounded in Malta. Modern scholarship tend to teal toward Roero, but, you know, we don't know for sure. We don't really, Roero himself kind of disappears from the record. We don't really know a whole lot about him after this. All the records involving Roero and Caravaggio in Malta were uh, destroyed. It looks like some people suggest that maybe Roero was covering his tracks and destroyed a lot of the evidence. In either case, by now Caravaggio was left badly wounded with this giant scar on his face. So he spent a few months recovering at uh, Costanza's palace. After hearing that Cardinal Gonzaga and Scipione Borghese were trying to help get him a, a pardon in exchange for paintings, Caravaggio started working furiously to paint as much as he could, and his plan was to take these paintings somewhere close to Rome, just outside of papal jurisdiction, but close enough that he could have them sent to Scipione Borghese and Cardinal Gonzaga as a bribe, and that they, he would wait on the outskirts of Rome for news of his pardon to arrive so that he could return. So at this point, he took a boat to reach this town just outside papal jurisdiction. Uh, this is in the summer of 1610, taking with him all these paintings. They stopped at a place called Palo, where there was pretty much nothing other than a little fortress there. For unknown reasons, he was arrested there, but he managed to be released a couple of days later. Did he escape? Did he bribe the guards? Did Because we don't know why he was arrested, we don't really know what happened after this either. But even though he's free, he's not in the happiest condition because he's alone in bandit country, the boat that he was traveling in, in the meantime, has left and went almost 70 miles away. So Caravaggio runs after the boat to recover his paintings because he needs them to strike a deal with Scipione Borghese. If he doesn't have these paintings, the deal is off. 
So he just start making his way along the coast, just going the 70 miles. He arrived and found that the boat had already left from there with his painting. What happens next is mysterious. Some people say that he died of fever because of the exhaustion of running under the sun on the beach. Some people say that he was murdered. Nobody knows. In any case, these, at least the official story tells us that this is the end of Caravaggio's life. He dies along the beach somewhere here. Um, the story tells us that his body was thrown in an unmarked grave. Some people speculate that maybe he was killed by the Tomassoni family. Some people think that he just uh, um, died of exhaustion. Baglione, his longtime rival and biographer, has this to say about Caravaggio's death. Without the aid of God or man, he died badly, just like he had lived. Ironically, the Pope did pardon him, just a few days after his death. Now, there's a popular theory suggests that Caravaggio staged his own death, and that the fact that his body was never found is uh, give rise to some of his conspiracy theories. Unlikely, he probably did die, but again, you know, like all good legends, why spoil them with the truth? We don't know. Again, that's the reality of it. We don't really know what happened. Um, the official version, and it's probably a correct one, tells us that Caravaggio died on the beach at this time. I kind of picture uh, what may have happened in Rome as news of Caravaggio's demise arrived. I picture the Tommasoni family probably frustrated that they lost the chance to kill him themselves. I picture Baglione and the artward elite breathing a sigh of relief to be finally rid of Caravaggio. I imagine Costanza Colonna and Cardinal Del Monte shedding tears for him since they were some of the people who actually truly cared for him. I imagine members of his former crew hanging out in their favorite tavern, raising their glasses to his memory. Caravaggio had a huge impact on a lot of people. Despite this, or perhaps because of this, after his death, some of his critics tried to make the memory, like his memory, disappear. They did not want him to be remembered. They believed that art should present an idealized reality rather than Caravaggio's brutal realism. Some flat out considered him the antichrist of art. They, they hated his popularity and they tried their best to make sure that everybody would forget about him. And for a while, they succeeded. For the next 300 years, I mean, of course, people knew about him, but he was, not, he was not the household name that he was when he was alive, and he was not the household name that he will be again. Because in the 1920s, Caravaggio is rediscovered when the art historian Roberto Longhi dedicates lots of his work to him and does much to bring... Caravaggio's work back under the spotlight. Now, Caravaggio is easily the most popular painter of his age. He had a huge impact on modern cinema, on art. The director Martin Scorsese is a huge fan of Caravaggio, and he said, he would have been a great filmmaker. There is no doubt about it. 
Well, Martin, if you're interested, give me a call. I'll write the screenplay, you direct, let's make a movie about him. That would be fun. His contemporaries would have been surprised by his enduring fame. Um, they had hoped to be rid of him for good. They were not. Here we have some of his rivals, like Baglione. Baglione had a long life. He was successful. He won many prestigious commissions from the popes. But eventually he was forgotten by everyone. You know, he was respectable, but he had no talent. Caravaggio, on the other hand, lived a short, dramatic, brutal life. But what he lost in missing out on a comfortable life, he gained by becoming a legend. So, here ends the story of Michelangelo Merisi, better known as Caravaggio. <laughs>